Forty years ago, HIV-AIDS was a fearsome scourge. Today, it's manageable, and many people with it can lead normal lives. Much of the life-saving research into the virus and the disease has been conducted by my next guest in his 40 years at the National Institutes of Health. He's the clinical director for the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Clifford Lane joins me now. Dr. Lane, good to have you on. Thank you for inviting me. And you have done, according to the citation, more than 30 clinical trials over the years to try to get to some way of getting this under control. And those of us old enough to remember when it was really the most talked about public health issue of the day, you know, during the Reagan years and so forth. Tell us about what you did, what these trials were all about and how you got this whole network established. So uh, you're right. I mean, it's hard to imagine today what HIV AIDS was like in the early 1980s, where patients would come in, they would have a variety of opportunistic infections or cancers. And despite our ability to treat some of those infections or cancers, we couldn't do anything to the underlying immune defect, which was then discovered to be due to the virus that we call HIV. So what we had done at the NIH is early on, we were bringing patients here who had what's now called AIDS, And we were trying all different types of therapies, trying to stimulate their immune system, trying to use antivirals even before we knew what the virus was. And then eventually the first drug proven to be effective, AZT, was identified by collaborations between Sam Broder, the Cancer Institute, and Burroughs Welcome was the company at the time. It's GSK today. And that was the first step. And from there, looking at other single agents, combination agents, eventually finding ways that combinations of antiviral drugs would well suppress the virus, allow the immune system to recover, then moving on to studies to try to figure out the best way to do those potent drugs, such that from the time of diagnosis, patients should be on continuous therapy. And with that, life expectancies approach normal for patients with AIDS. Right. And not only life expectancy, but quality of life is generally pretty good for those people, correct? It has been made a major change in the lives of patients with AIDS, yes. And let me ask you this, because in the current pandemic, a lot of the focus has been on the virus itself. And very early on, when the coronavirus broke out here, there were pictures of it. You know, it looked like a little ball with sticks coming out all over and this Mm. kind of thing. And so the national effort was to get a vaccine. It seems like in the case of the AIDS virus, which I imagine is a totally different family of virus, the concentration was on mitigating the effects of the virus because why? the virus could not be dealt with in a vaccine manner the way the current virus can? It's an interesting question, an interesting perception, because, I mean, actually, if you look at uh, those two viruses and the way it's been approached, there has been an aggressive vaccine effort in HIV since the virus was discovered and an aggressive therapeutic effort. In terms of COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2, actually also a very aggressive treatment and vaccine effort. We've just been more successful in treatments when it comes to AIDS overall and much less successful in vaccines compared to COVID-19, where we've been really successful in vaccines. And while we can prevent patients early on from getting real sick, we still don't have great therapies for COVID-19 for those patients who are severely ill. Right. So is there still an ongoing effort even in this latter day to see if ever a vaccine can be developed for the AIDS virus? 
There absolutely is. There's a very robust vaccine effort, both by you know the public sector, the NIH, and by private industry. It's just a real challenge because of the way the virus is able to constantly change. You know, just like COVID-19, there are changes, but the HIV virus seems to have an ability to change much more rapidly and, in essence, to evade the immune system. A good immune response we know can block COVID-19, give you more rapid recovery. We have very few people who make that type of good immune response to HIV. Interesting. We're speaking with Dr. Clifford Lane. He's clinical director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And throughout this 40-year period of running these trials, was that the main focus of your work? Because there's a lot of infectious diseases and you are the (laughs) clinical director, but it sounds like this was central in your career. Certainly at the time I came to NIH, it was at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. So that was where the focus was. And and again, what we do is we take the clinical trials as ways to better our understanding of the pathogenesis of the illness. So a lot of the work that we do has been studying the nature of the immune defect in patients with HIV in ways that we might even approach that immune defect independent of attacking the virus. As you say, we are the infectious diseases, the Allergy Immunology Institute, and from time to time, there have been a few other challenges that have come our way, the most recent ones being Ebola and then COVID-19, as you said. Right. And these clinical trials, just from a functional standpoint, were these generally conducted within the confines of NIH, which does have some trials running natively, or are these contracted out to hospitals and health networks throughout the country? It's a combination. Some of the studies were done here just within the clinical center of the NIH in Bethesda, and some of them have been done in collaboration with outside networks. One of the collaborators I have for a lot of this work is Professor Jim Neaton at the University of Minnesota. That's a global network called Insight that did studies looking at timing and whether or not intermittent versus continuous therapy is needed. So these are large global networks. HIV is a global problem. We feel it important to have a global research network. But then we engage and and have good collaborations between the federal workers as well as the funded external collaborators. And if you look at the HIV AIDS episode, long episode, as kind of a social and medical and political event in the nation's history, and many people were involved in many aspects of this throughout the country, throughout the world, really. In the latter day now, is there a kind of body of people that still stay in touch, still collaborate? It seems like there's a society of people that worked on this. Do you feel like you're part of something like that? I think those of us who have been involved in this uh, since the early days, you know, feel that we've gone through quite a considerable set of experiences. I I won't say a battle, but it at times has felt like a battle. And while we haven't seen each other other than through Zoom for the last couple of years, I think uh, we typically do, you know, have the chance to get together during, you know, annual meetings, whether they're domestically or internationally, and do stay in touch. And there is quite a bond, I think, between the groups that work on this disease and have worked on it. And preventing the spread of the virus, that was also a major public education effort and resulted in, I think, a lot of social changes, a lot of moire changes. And that must be something that you look proudly on, too, because it did change behaviors on a mass scale. You know, it's interesting when you look, I think, at the history of the response to AIDS is that there are a variety of things that happen that have been carried forward into other areas of research, certainly for us in infectious diseases. I think a very important part of it was the way the community that was most affected first felt a bit on the outside 
and then I think now feel much more, I hope feel much more as partners with us in developing and carrying out the research agenda and identifying what are the key questions at the moment that we should be addressing. And you are several years, a number of years past what would be standard annuitant age for federal employees. What keeps you going? I just love the work here. I think the mission of the NIH, uh, you know, fundamental and applied research to improve the health of the nation and by extension the world. I think it's a really good mission. We have the opportunity to do things that um, are just on a daily basis very rewarding. What else are you working on at this point? As director, sometimes it's a little more hands-off than perhaps, you know, that you made your bones on. (laughs) Well, as as clinical director, you do have oversight for a large portfolio. But to me, to be able to provide effective oversight, it's important to be active as well and to be a player as well as a director. So, again, you know, we continue the work in HIV AIDS. We actually have been very involved in, obviously, the COVID-19 response. My own area has been therapeutics and hospitalized patients. And then, obviously, most recently, we're getting involved in some monkeypox. We have a study getting ready to start in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, I'm hoping within the next month or two. All right. Well, we're glad you're on the job. Dr. Clifford Lane is clinical director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is 
historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. 
Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schellendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, 
there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield. And this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.